when, when Rachel and I moved to Chicago uh, about a year and a half after we were married, I was going to grad school at Trinity, uh, north of Chicago, and a few months into my seminary studies, um, uh, Rachel uh, pregnant with Jackson, uh, which was a wonderful blessing, unexpected, but a wonderful blessing. And um, so we were far away from home uh, and had no family in the area. We had some friends in the area. And I was navigating what it meant to be a father over this nine-month period and trying to figure it all out. And to be honest with you, it was really frightening. Uh, The most frightening, I think, were the birthing classes. If you've been to those, you know what that's all about. I... uh, I just said to our birthing instructors this simple phrase, ignorance is bliss, right? So let's just find out when it happens. I don't need any. Uh, So by the time we made it uh, to Rachel was in labor, um, I was more of the person in need of medical assistance than Rachel. She was was awesome. And the nurses kept looking at me saying, you need to sit down, right? I'm serious, sit down right now. And I was up by Rachel's head, just facing her eyes, not looking at anything, and I still was ready to, <laughs> to keel over. One of the things that people always talk about uh, in terms of pregnancy is that women get cravings, right? You've heard of this, or you've experienced this, or you know people who've experienced it. And it seems sort of funny and interesting until it actually happens, and then you, it's like pretty intense. And as the husband, one of your jobs is to attempt to fulfill those cravings. And so in Chicago, Rachel's cravings was, was Dairy Queen. And when Tyler, when she was pregnant with Tyler, Rachel's craving was Taco Bell. And so I can promise you that I made several post-midnight trips to Taco Bell uh, for Rachel. But even if we're not pregnant, we have cravings, right? One of, I'll let you in on a, a secret. One of my favorite things to eat, you're going to think this is ridiculous, is hot dogs, and not just hot dogs, or not, the Lehigh Valley is famous for hot dogs, not any of those. I like to go to gas stations and find the hot dogs that have been spinning on the rollers for like two weeks, <laughs> and then eat them. They're my favorite food and all that. Rachel laughs. She'll get the credit card bill, and it's 99 cents to some gas station. She's like, you did it again, didn't you? I was hungry. I'm sorry. Two hot dogs for 99 cents? That's a great lunch, man. It, and you've got to find the ones in the back that <clears throat> have been sitting there forever. That's my craving. I don't know what your craving is. I won't make you share. Uh, this morning in the Beatitudes, we come to Jesus' statement, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for old, shriveled-up hot dogs, but for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The words hunger and thirst in the Greek are filled with meaning. Uh, They have a sense of first desperation, right? We're talking not so much about, you know, when your kids come up to you and say, Daddy, I'm starving, and you want to give them, you know, a long, logical explanation of people who are actually starving. You've done that as a parent, right? This verse, uh, this context means people who are actually starving. And so this is the, the context here. We're talking about people who are desperate. So think of the food that you like the least, right? Broccoli is right in my mind right now. It's front and center. And I say that for two reasons. One, because of that. And two, you might invite me over sometime, and I just want you to know ahead of time, I don't like broccoli. I'll eat it if you put it in front of me, but I won't smile. 
<laughs> think of the food you like the least, and think of what it would take for you to eat it and be so glad that you had it. This is what we're talking about here. Desperate for nourishment. Think about hiking across the desert and running out of water and being desperate to make it to the next place, the next oasis, the place where you find water. The second implication is that it is beyond your reach. You can say at home, I'm hungry, and then you immediately go to the refrigerator and you get what you need to satisfy your hunger. You don't continue to hunger and thirst if you have access to food and water. So what Jesus is necessarily implying here is it's not a temporal reality. It is something that is completely out of your reach. You can't get it. And then the third reality is this, and we know this as human beings, that if you continue to be without it, you will die. So you are desperate. It is out of your reach. And if you continue to be without it, you will die. This is the context of what Jesus is talking about. We need to understand a biblical reality of hungering and thirsting. And how do you get to the place of hungering and thirsting? What leads us to that reality? And uh, we find in the Old Testament these words hunger and thirst showing up a lot. Now, I'm not talking about just in situations where someone's been in the desert driving their herd for a while and they're hungry and thirsty and they get to a well and drink. There's actually places where God speaks through the prophets about the people who will hunger and thirst uh, and there's particular reasons for it. So I want to look at a couple of these verses. They should pop up on the screen behind me. If not, just listen and we'll, uh, we'll go with that. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 12 to 14 The first reality of hunger and thirsting is that God equates it with exile. In other words, God equates it with people who are are apart from God and not where uh, He is. Listen to this. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. What does God say through the prophet Isaiah? That exile is equated with hunger and thirsting. That when God sends us out because of our sin, our our unwillingness to respect Him and regard Him, Isaiah says, we're so filled with building our own kingdom of timbrels and drums and celebrations, our own kingdom and our world, that we have no regard for God, no respect for God. And so God says, you can't be where I am. There's exile. And the exile is characterized by hunger and thirst that will ultimately lead to what? Death. Death opens its jaws and swallows up. In the Old Testament law, when God gives the law to the people, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is what uh, Moses relays to the people. Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 48. 
because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, interesting word, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. So in other words, Isaiah says, you, you don't respect or regard God. You're building your own kingdom. So you have to be away from God. You can't be where God is. And Moses, uh, foretelling what, what Isaiah was going to say now is truth, tells the people that when you do not serve God, when you refuse to serve and follow God, then you're going to be sent away from God and you're going to serve your enemies because you didn't serve God. You're going to hunger and you're going to thirst. See, Jesus is calling on these realities when he makes this statement. Hunger and thirst has to do with exile. Why are you hungry and thirsty? Because your sin has moved you away from God and you can't be where he is. And it's a place of death unless it's rectified. The prophet Isaiah also tells us that hunger and thirst is equated with idolatry. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 44, uh, verse 12, and then we'll skip down to verse 18. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and he grows faint. Verse 18, they know nothing, they understand nothing, their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. See, idolatry is equated with hunger and thirst. We are creating idols for ourselves, and as the result of our efforts to build these idols instead of worshiping God, what happens to us is we begin to hunger and thirst because we're now moving after something that is antithetical to that which we were created to worship and follow. Do you see the reality here? You hunger and thirst because of idolatry. Listen, uh, chances are you are not a blacksmith. And, and chances are you are not fashioning idols out of clay or wood or coals or whatever at home. But you understand that your life is full of idols. And mine is too. We spend so much time trying to create God in our own image rather than remembering that we were created in God's image. And because of this, we go hungry and thirsty. And the description of us is that we don't even get it. Right? Verse 18, we don't understand, our minds are, are, are covered, our eyes are covered. Paul will later say in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded us to understanding. Uh, that ties into Deuteronomy 28 where we now serve our enemies. We serve Satan himself rather than God. It's this whole reality of we are no longer doing what we were created to do. We were created to worship and follow God and now we are off building our own kingdom, subservient to the devil himself, creating images of God, God in our own image rather than being created in the image of God. And as a result, we begin to hunger and we begin to thirst because we are not getting the fulfillment 
God himself that we were created to have? What does it mean to hunger and to thirst? We hunger and we thirst because we are poor in spirit. If you were with us at the beginning of this series on the Beatitudes, you remember our discussion on uh, what it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember? And we said that the poor in spirit are spiritual beggars. That they are bankrupt when it comes to anything good to offer God. Completely desperate for God. Uh, covering our faces with one hand and holding our empty hand out like a beggar on a street desperate for God to give us something. This is the picture here of hungering and thirsting. Hungering and thirsting. But what Jesus wants us to know is that it is possible to be poor in spirit. It is even possible to mourn your sin. It is even possible to exhibit meekness and to still yet not grasp the gospel. Because we all hunger and thirst at some level. Jesus says you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now we're beginning to hear the fullness of the gospel. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness in its very literal sense means being full of that which is right. Right? We are full of right. Uh, and chances are that's not you and it's not me either. Uh, in its sort of contextual understanding in, in literature and in scripture, it has the idea of being approved and being accepted. When you are righteous, you are accepted. In theological sense, when you are righteous, God approves you and accepts you. Exile and separation exist because you are not righteous. So God cannot accept you or, or, or approve you. Acceptance or approval. And the truth is, we all have this inherent need for righteousness. And guess what? We all know it, even though we sometimes don't express it. Scripture tells us that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. Right? We all know that we need righteousness. Look at our world. It is full of people who are desperate to be approved and accepted. Is it not? Me first, right? And you too. We're all searching for it. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. Can I suggest to you there are three ways we do this? Two of them are very faulty and bad. We need to avoid them. And then there is the one that Jesus is really pointing at here. First way that we often hunger and thirst after righteousness is that we look for worldly approval or acceptance. We look for worldly approval or acceptance. Think about every aspect of your life. And you'll be reminded that most everything you do is to, to seek approval or acceptance. In your parenting, in your family life, at work, at school, education, relationships, vocation, no matter what it is, all the one thing that it all has in common is that we are looking to be approved and accepted. We're looking for the verdict of approval. And think about it. You have a big job interview. You have a huge exam or test. 
Uh, you're out on a date with someone who you really want to like you. you know? All of them have in common this awaiting a verdict. How is this going to go? Will I get this and therefore find all kinds of approval, which leads to what? Fulfillment? Or will I not get it, which is rejection and leads to being distraught? You see it? We order our lives so much around worldly approval. We are looking to be approved and accepted by everything and anything. Because each time we receive it in this world, it's this little sense of fulfillment. But the problem is that it is fleeting. Right? You know this. That's why you keep looking for it. Right? Like, you know, you ever, heard the, you ever read the book, The Love Languages, The Five Love Languages? You've read about that. So my, one of my love languages, if you ever want to love me, is um, words of praise. Right? So whenever someone comes up to me and says, hey, you did a good job, like my little tank goes full. But the problem is it doesn't stay full. Because I'm looking for worldly acceptance and approval. I look for it from my wife. I look for it from my friends. I look for it at my work. I even pray every time before I get up here because I have the temptation to look for approval based upon me speaking the words of God. How sinful and disgusting is that? You know? But we all do that. Right? We're all looking to perform at some level. What I want to suggest to you is it's actually a good thing that is driving you but it is completely warped and corrupted by sin. So you are looking for approval in all the wrong places. You've taken what God is willing to offer you for free and full and have looked for it in all the wrong places. We've looked for it in worldly <coughs> approval. Second thing, second way we sometimes take this and, and go about it the wrong way is we, we, we hunger and thirst for righteousness with religious achievement. Religious achievement. Now here, catch this, and this is so, so critical. I find this is true amongst so many Christians. We get the poverty of spirit. I'm poor in spirit. I don't have enough. I need Jesus. I need God. I'm not enough. I get it. I get my sin. I'm a sinner. I understand it. We mourn our sin. We are repentant of our sin. We understand that it has caused the death of Christ and that He has died in our place. And we mourn that. And we see meekness exhibited in our life because our pride and arrogance doesn't swell because we realize who we are and what God has done for us. But then we take a radical left turn away from the Gospel. And we say, now I'm going to add religious achievement to the existence of my sin. And what we're really saying to God is, I'm a sinner, but I do a lot of good. Right? Now, it sounds silly to say it like that, but you and me, we all live that way a lot of, the, a lot of times. Because we're looking for approval and acceptance. Now we're looking for it in the right way from God, but we're trying to earn it rather than receive it. And so we set these religious standards for ourselves, or communities of faith set them for us, and we try to go live into those realities. And what we find time and time again is burnout or complete guilt and being distraught because you can't live up to those standards. You can't. See, we intellectually believe the gospel. And we believe it in our heart that I'm a sinner. 
and, and that I'm saved by grace, and that on my own I can't be where God is. But because of what Jesus has done for me, He has paid the penalty for my sin, and I have the, the ability to be where God is. And now I'm going to go please God with all of my religious achievement. Every time someone says the word please God or pleasing to God, my soul cringes. And it's not always that they're saying it in the wrong way, but it is so dangerous to say I'm doing this in order to please God. Because it's antithetical to the Gospel. We don't please God. We can't please God. Can our activity sometimes be disappointing to God? Of course it can. But there's no sum total of your religious achievement that can please God. Saying to God, I'm a sinner, but, I'm, but I do good, is not the Gospel. It's not the Gospel. Let me tell you this story. I heard this story in a sermon that Tim Keller preached on this subject. And, and I would encourage you to read and, and ingest really anything Tim Keller says, but particularly on this subject. This is the story he tells, I think, that illustrates it really, really powerfully. There was a woman uh, and a man uh, who were in love. They were a young woman and a young man. They were in love. They grew up in a very, very conservative church. Very much religious achievement, right? Very much you have to live a certain way. You have the exteriors all right, even if the interiors aren't right. And they were ready to be married. And um, a month or two before their ceremony, the woman realized that she was pregnant. And so they talked about what they would do about this. Because it would be completely unacceptable in their church. And it would be completely frowned on. And confession wouldn't be enough. They would miss the standards. And so for some reason, this couple decided to abort their baby. And for the rest of her life, she could never get over it. She walked down the aisle a month later, and everything looked perfect from the outside. But the entire way down the aisle, in her mind, was a voice saying, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. And she spent the next several years of her life dealing with this guilt and overwhelmed by it and distraught by it and never getting beyond it. And she went to a conference and she heard a Christian speaker talk about grace and the gospel that she had heard a million times over. And she went back afterwards or in a line or whatever and she took the speaker aside and the speaker gave her some time and she shared her story with this speaker and said, you know, my whole life, I can't forgive myself. I can't get over it. And the speaker had the audacity to say to her, you were a murderer long before you aborted your, your baby. You've always been a murderer. Your sin was responsible for the death of Jesus. And so what you've done here is no worse than what you've done there. And at the, for the first time in her life, she understood the gravity of sin. Right? Sin, capital S. That which is in us that causes us to act in all these sinful ways. 
And she understood just how bad her sin was. And then she began to understand that the reason she couldn't forgive herself and even made the decision that she made was because she had set a religious standard for herself that she needed to achieve above all things. And then when she didn't, she couldn't forgive herself because she was living for her own righteousness. She believed the gospel halfway, but then thought she needed to add religious achievement. And as the speaker assured her that she was forgiven if she sought it, she realized that in human terms, we never really have acceptance because we're always wondering what this person would really think of me if they knew everything, right? We're always wondering what our friends and our colleagues would really think of us if they knew every single thing about us. And she had just realized that Jesus knew everything about her, and yet she was completely accepted. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That we hunger and thirst not after a righteousness of our own choosing, but a righteousness that is beyond us, that we need from someone else, and the person that has it is Jesus himself. The third way that we hunger and thirst for righteousness, the way that Jesus is pushing us towards here is what we'll call divine allotment. That God gives it to you. You don't earn it or get it from someone else. It's interesting. Uh, in the Greek, in the Greek um, language here, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the typical way that this would appear in Greek, the typical way, the typical structure that would happen here uh, in terms of declension and tense would be that uh, the phrase there would be in what's called the genitive, and you would understand that by possessiveness, of, right? So genitive is normally translated of, the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits belong to the Spirit, right? Um, my glasses, the glasses of Adam, the, the glasses belong to Adam. And in, in this way, it would be translated sort of like uh, those who hunger and thirst for some righteousness, you know? But it's not. And it's a, it's a weird and perplexing Greek formation here that actually shows up in what's called the accusative. And what the accusative really means is that they are hungering and thirsting for righteousness itself. Right? In other words, they don't just need a slice of the cake. They need the whole darn thing. Get it? So what Jesus is driving after is that you don't need just some righteousness. You need perfect righteousness. You don't just need a little approval from the world. You need divine perfect approval. That your heart is really hungering and thirsting for that reality. You need the righteousness of Jesus himself. Listen. The gospel is all about the cross, and we love the cross in Christian faith. And I love the cross. The cross is unbelievable. Right? So on the cross, Jesus receives the punishment of God for our sins. Uh, theologians call this propitiation. In other words, that the wrath that God rightly has against sin is dealt with when God pours out his wrath on Jesus 
in your place. But so often we stop the Gospel right there and say, thank you for dying for me, Jesus. You've paid for my sin. And then what we realize is there's, no, there's nothing beyond that. We never grow. We never experience change or transformation in our life. We never, but the Gospel doesn't just say that your sins are paid for. It also says that the righteousness that is Jesus is given to you. Right? And so our union with Christ that comes through the Gospel is just as critical as the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes the wrath of God for your sin, penalty paid. Through your union to Christ, the full righteousness of Jesus is deposited into you. You are approved. Theologians call this justification. So think of it this way in pure layman's terms. Say you owned a big field, a big 10 acres, 20 acres, 3 trillion acres, however big you want to make your plot of land. And you bought it when you had no money. But somehow you got this huge loan to buy this huge piece of land. And you're trying to make payments on it, but you're falling behind. You're in massive debt to this huge piece of land. Then imagine if someone comes and says, I'm going to pay off your debt. And now you have this land. That's half the gospel. Right? And that's... Unbelievable. But then imagine the same person says, and I'm going to build you a mansion right on this land so you can live there. Now you're getting the fullness of the gospel. That not only are your sins paid for, but the perfect righteousness of Christ is deposited in your account. That you went from in debt, not to even, but to rich. Do you see it? Do you see the sense in what Jesus is saying here. And so, what we have to understand when we receive the Gospel and we're after the Kingdom is that our hunger and thirst for righteousness, for approval, for acceptance is really our desire to be where God is, to be approved by God, to be accepted by God, to be called sons and daughters of God, to be called children of God, to be said by God, you were approved, I see you as perfect, You are justified. You're not guilty. You're in. The full inheritance of God is yours. This is what theologian John Stott has said. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Then the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for God. Man. If the essence of sin is that you have put yourself in God's place, then the essence of the gospel or salvation is that God has put himself in your place. And this is revolutionary. Remarkable. Unbelievable. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to have sin so that we might have the Righteousness of God. For He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to take on your sin, not just so the penalty would be paid, but so that you might have the righteousness of God. 
This is the gospel. We've said all along that the Beatitudes are a gospel litmus test. We are not saying that if you feel like you're not good at this, you've got to go home and really work on this. Right? The Beatitudes aren't meant to point you to the Beatitudes. They've got to point you to Jesus. He does this, you don't. So I ask you, are you hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of Jesus? To the level that you are, that is equated to the level in which the Gospel has sunk deeply into your heart. But if you're like me, and you've only got pieces of the Gospel, then you know that you've got to continually stand on the platform that says that not only am I a sinner, but I am totally devoid of righteousness. And I throw myself desperately at Jesus for approval and for acceptance. And I turn away from seeking it in this world And I throw aside my attempts to earn it through religious achievement. I'm going to change myself. I'm going to clean my life up. You watch me. I got Jesus now. I'm going to go clean my life up. Good luck. (laughs) You can't do it. It'll work little bits, little parts, you know. One time, like 10 years ago, when my uh, my in-laws were away, there used to be the show on TV that Rachel loved, like, called While You Were Away. These people would come in and redo rooms in people's houses while they were away. She got the crazy idea that we would do this for her parents. Uh, the problem is, she's great at decorating, but she thought that I could build some things. And <laughs> so she's like, let's put crown molding up. And I was like, okay, let's do that. And then I tried to do it. And I, you got to cut the wood like 18 different ways just to piece it together in the ends. And so, <laughs> so we put it up. And it looked good in certain parts where it didn't have to connect to anything else, and it looked horrible there. That's what self, self-improvement projects looked like, right? If you zoom in right here above the window, doesn't it look good? Well, wait a minute, I need to see the whole room. Man, that stinks, right? That's what self-improvement projects look like for us. We think that, oh God, you paid for my sins, thank you so much. Now I'm going to go clean my life up, and I'm going to earn your approval, and I'm going to please you with how I live. Well, guess what? It works a little bit, but it doesn't work at all. So instead of trying to improve yourself, what you need to do is continually throw yourself into the depths of the Gospel at the feet of Jesus, astounded that He would impute His righteousness to you, and then you will find this interesting spiritual reality that you will be filled. Not filled in the sense of, oh, I'm fulfilled. Filled in the sense of, Jesus saying that though I'm going away, I'm sending my spirit to you. You will be filled with the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God. Born anew, controlled by the spirit, filled with the spirit, baptized by the spirit, And the Spirit is the one who works new life in you. You don't do that. So put your hammer and nails down. And say, Spirit, have your way in me. There's a story in the Old Testament, famous, famous story, of a man named Joseph. 
Joseph is a brother to uh, a whole herd of brothers. And Joseph's not innocent because he likes to flaunt the fact that his daddy likes him more than the rest. And he tells all his brothers about the great dreams he has, that he's the best of the bunch, right? We always like to make Joseph innocent. He's not quite innocent, though he doesn't deserve what happens to him. His brothers finally say, I've had enough of you. You've, you've been to this place when you were kids or even when you were adults, and you've got the person who's boasting all the time. And finally, say, I'm going to kick the seat out from under you so you realize that you've fallen hurt just like the rest of us. But instead of just roughing him up a little bit, they decide that they're going to get rid of him, kill him. And while they don't have the heart to actually kill him, they make it look like he's killed by wild animals and they sell him into slavery. And Joseph goes into slavery and goes all the way down to Egypt and through the miraculous redemptive nature of God, Joseph grows in stature and favor in the kingdom of Egypt, so much so that he is second only to the Pharaoh himself in terms of power. And suddenly there's famine in Israel. And as the people of God always do, they go to Egypt when there's famine for some crazy reason. And so the brothers of Joseph make their way to Egypt. And when they get there looking for food, they find none other than Joseph himself. The man who they presume to be dead for all intents and purposes, he's now risen from the dead and stands right in front of them. Listen to this story. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Jesus said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. You can imagine what's going through the brothers' minds right about now, right? Terrified, shaking in their pants or their boots or whatever people say, you know? Like, what's going to happen to us now? And now, Joseph says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in this land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing, no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you.
do you see the picture? The brothers that killed him now find themselves in front of him and tremble as they await the fate that they deserve. And instead of receiving the fate that they deserve, they are embraced by the brother who they killed. And he says to them, God has made you do this, or has enabled you, has allowed you to do this, so that I might in turn save you. He has made me Lord of all, and now come into my kingdom and live as kings like me. That's the gospel. This is what Jesus says. The resurrected Jesus who stands in front of you. Yes, you killed me with your sin. But God has allowed it to happen so that I could save you. And so don't be distressed. The death that you deserve because of your sin is not coming. Instead, I'm going to weep so loudly for you that all of Egypt will hear. And now God has made me Lord of all. Every knee will bow to me. And this is my kingdom. So come into my kingdom and live as kings and queens with me. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Can I pray with you?